Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is another money episode, and this one is on our current debt-based society. But before we get into it, I do have a quick announcement to make. If you have not seen on social media yet, we are doing a giveaway drive where I've had some t-shirts designed that have the Our Foundations logo on it and a few other things. Uh, There are two designs that are out there, and I will be ordering the first set of shirts within the next probably few weeks or so. And so with that, a few of those shirts will be given away to listeners. So if you're interested in a free shirt and you're listening to this podcast now, I am recording this as of April 2019. So that is if you are current and you're listening, you can find all the details on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash our foundations, or you can just go to the show notes and click on the link there for the Patreon page. And it should be the most recent post and it discusses what the details are. Basically, you have to have listened to at least one episode before. So if you're hearing this, then you can mark that one off. The next criteria is that you do one of, I think, four different things. You can share the podcast on social media or leave a rating and review on your podcast player or a few other things. You just need to do at least one of those things and then send me an email with what you did and answer basically two little questions and that's it. Then you are submitted and I will randomly select a few listeners to get some free t-shirts. So if you're interested, then check it out. Do it. It shouldn't take you too long and you might get some free stuff out of it. So hopefully you like it. Also, if anybody looks on there and has any comments on the t-shirt designs, like I said, there are two different designs. So please give me some feedback. Send me an email. Let me know what you do like, what you don't like, which design you like better. And that would be helpful too. So moving on. Now we can get into this discussion on our debt-based society. Now, the debt focus that we have now is not strictly with us individuals. It is also with the nation and the government as a whole. So I want to start off from a more of a praxeological point of view. So I've mentioned praxeology with the Austrian economics and Keynesian episode, but if you did not listen to that one, that is basically just the study of human action. So we are not going to look at the why for why do people get into so much debt? That is an issue with psychology. We're not going to get into the moral arguments of is it wrong or is it right? That's an issue for ethics. We are not going to get into any of the other underlying issues with it. All we're going to do is look at the facts. So to begin with, I want to run through some statistics. This should give you a rough idea of where we are currently in today's world. So the first one is the level of national debt in the United States, and that currently sits at roughly $22 trillion, and that is trillion with a T. So that's quite a bit. With individuals, one of the biggest sources of debt is student loans, and the student loan debt rate right now is at roughly $1.56 trillion, and that is with an average of roughly 69% of students holding student loan debt with an average of around $33,000 a piece. 
So each student out of all the students that are around, it says roughly 70% of them are each holding around $33,000 of student loan debt. Now, as far as other consumer debt and consumer debt as a whole, that sits at a whopping $3.898 trillion. And again, that's trillion with a T. The average debt for a consumer is $11,880. Now, the average household holds roughly $137,663 worth of debt in total for the average household. Now, with that, the average income is roughly $59,000. So even if you had a two-income household on average, that would put you at roughly $120,000 a year you're bringing in as a household with an average of $137,000 a year that you are in debt. So that's a little off balance. As far as the government is concerned, we currently have many unfunded liabilities. The biggest and most important would be that of Social Security and Medicare. So with these, looking into the future, we have planned to spend roughly $46.7 trillion that we currently do not have, that is currently unfunded. Uh, we plan on getting that through taxes and other things, but currently that is our liability number. So again, that's pretty high. As far as an overall view Government expenditures are rising. We are spending more and more dollars. We are currently sitting at roughly $22 trillion, like I mentioned before. And at the same time, we do have this positive note that the economy is rising. So our GDP growth has been over 2%, close to 3% since Trump has taken office. And those are fairly good numbers. Our total GDP is $20.8 trillion, at far, as far as the most recent figure I could find. However, when you compare the $20.8 trillion in GDP, that's pretty much the money that we are making as a nation, and you compare that to the $22 trillion worth of debt, again, that doesn't really add up. That's like the household debt versus household income numbers the debt still outweighs the money coming in. So there is a statistic that is a good measurement of this. It is just debt to GDP, and that's sitting at 105%. Now, to put that in perspective, the World Bank says that anything at 77% or more is past what they call the tipping point and is very dangerous, and you should not go there as a nation. We are not at 77%. We are at 105%, well past that number. And for historical comparison, it has been a very long time. I think we have only hit that number once before in the entire history of the nation. So there's that. I'll go over some debt-to-GDP numbers when we mention the financial crisis later on, and you can get an idea. But to briefly mention it here, at the highest point, it got up to around 100% as we were trying to recover from that, and pretty much just never went back down, just keeps going up. That's the general trend. So, let me give 
an example that I've gotten from Peter Schiff, it's not exactly the way he says it because I don't really feel like looking it up and quoting him, but he likes to tell a story to illustrate this idea of a debt-based society like the one we have right now. What he says is, let's say you see an old friend that you knew back in high school, you were buddies back then, and you hadn't seen him in years, and you run into this guy and... You say, hi, how's it going? How's life? How are things in your world? And the guy comes to you and is like, man, it's it's actually pretty good. Like, I have a decent job. It's not great, but it's not horrible. I enjoy it. I make decent money. Uh, I've actually been able to pay off my house, and we don't owe anything on our cars. I don't have a huge house, but it's big enough for me and my family, and I'm married, and we have a van to haul around the kids, and it's completely paid off. So we're really excited. We've paid off all of our debts, and although we don't make a huge amount, we don't have fancy cars or a fancy house or anything, we're really happy with the situation we're in. We're doing really good. And you'd look at that friend and probably say, hey, that's awesome, dude. You you are doing good. That sounds like a really good situation you're in. And So, then you leave this conversation, and you go somewhere else, and you run into another friend from high school, roughly the same situation, and you ask him, hey, how are you doing? How are things going in your life? And the guy tells you, oh, man, they're they're going great. I'm doing great. I've, you know, got married and started a family, and got this crazy job where I'm making all kinds of money. I'm in sales and we're, we have these giant commission checks that are coming in all the time and, you know, been able to spend all that money taking the family on these huge vacations and going out of the country. We got this giant mansion house and, you know, the, the monthly payments on it are super high, but with these giant commission checks, I'm able to cover it, and that is awesome. We've maxed out our loan on it. We're, we only had to put 5% down on the house. It was great. We got a great interest rate. It's awesome. We also got brand new cars. I've got a brand new car. My wife has a brand new car. They're both BMWs. We just got a Mercedes for my 16-year-old daughter, and we were able to buy that with 0% down and you know finance it all. And Monthly payments aren't horrible, we're making it, and we're making do, but yeah, man, it's going great. We got all this nice stuff, and we're we're excited. Things are going wonderfully. Well, you'd probably come away from that conversation and think, man, this guy's screwed. He owes so much money on his house and on his cars and all these things he's spending money on, and not only is he blowing his entire paycheck, but he's going, sounds like, pretty deeply into debt for it. I don't think that guy's actually doing very good. Well, that's the situation we're in now. So ideally as a nation and as an individual, you don't have a lot of debt and you are making more money than you are borrowing and spending. That's the ideal scenario. However, the current scenario, as we looked at on average with individuals as well as with the government, is more like that second friend that you ran into where they're just borrowing more and more and more money and spending is going up. They're actually buying lots of stuff. The economy is booming and going up and up, but it's because people are borrowing more and more money. It's because the government is going more and more into debt because they're printing off more and more money. So is that a good thing? Well, you be the judge. You may be wondering, why do we live in a debt-based society? What's going on here? How did this happen? 
Well, mainly because we have a debt-based monetary system, and this is all around the world. We touched on this a little bit in the Federal Reserve and Fractional Reserve Banking episode we did a while ago, but I want to specifically focus on this debt-based monetary system aspect of it. Now, what do I mean by debt-based monetary system? Well, what I mean is that our money, our fiat money, is created out of thin air, it is not backed up by anything, and with that, governments are borrowing money and individuals are borrowing money that is just printed and created out of thin air. It's electronic money that is not backed by anything. So what happens is when this money is created, it is created through debt. So let's look at the government, for example, and this is governments all around the world. Like I said, this is not strictly America. Almost every industrialized country around the world today has a central bank, and they all pretty much act the same way. Now, what happens is that when a government needs money, they don't just print it themselves. With a central bank system, they go to the central bank, and the central bank will loan the government money. Now, how do they do this? Do they have a giant reserve of money that they just dish out and receive interest payments on? No. What they do is when they loan money to a government, it just gets created out of thin air. So all of a sudden, they put a deposit into the government's accounts and credit their account with, let's say, a billion dollars. That billion dollars did not exist before that transaction. That billion dollars was just created and it's not backed by anything, it didn't come from anywhere, they didn't have to lower any account anywhere else in order to come up with this, it's just a magically appearing billion dollars that the government now has to spend. So, the same thing happens, in a sense, with individuals. Let's say I go to the bank and I want to borrow, not a billion dollars, but maybe a thousand dollars. Well, what the bank does is they give me a loan for a thousand dollars, and they ask for interest payments on that. Well, where did that $1,000 come from? Did it come from other depositors, maybe? Did it come from anywhere else? Well, technically, it did come from other depositors. But what happens is they did not actually take $1,000 out of one of their other customers' accounts and give it to me. What they did is they credited my account with $1,000 while they still have $1,000 on the books in someone else's account. Now, how does this happen? This is the fractional reserve banking model. This is what we had already discussed before, but I'll briefly mention it again here. What happens is that one person puts $1,000 in their bank account. According to government regulations, I know in America, if it's a checking account, they have to keep 10% of that money on reserve. If it is a savings account or a foreign account or a CD, pretty much anything else, they don't have to keep anything on reserve. And what they do is then they take either 90% or maybe even 100% of that $1,000 that someone deposited in their account, and they loan it out to somebody else. So now all of a sudden, there is $2,000 worth of money in two separate accounts, all based off that first 1000 Now, what happens next? Well... Then the money that got loaned out to somebody, he goes out and spends it. And then whoever he spends it with, that person who receives that $1,000 from them would then likely put it in their bank account. And basically, the cycle goes on and on and on. 
it can go up to roughly 10 times depending on the type of account that it gets deposited in. But assuming it's a checking account and the bank has to keep a 10% reserve, then after that first thousand is loaned out, then they can loan out 900 and then they can loan out, I'm not going to do the math on all that, but you get the point, a little bit less each time. But you end up having roughly $10,000 floating around out there that's magically created out of this $1,000 that someone put in. And that is how our entire monetary system works, whether it be with government and money just being basically created out of thin air electronically by central banks, or whether it be by personal accounts and individuals who are getting loans from banks with money that is not backed up by anything, not only gold, but not even dollars themselves. They don't exist. It just is magically created. And that's how things work. That is how the finance industry works. Now, the central banks and the Federal Reserve, it's kind of an ingenious plan because what they do is not only are they in the position where they can loan a government money, in which case they're very important to governments, they also receive interest on this money. Now, this does seem a little interesting because they create, let's say, a billion dollars out of thin air, and then they're receiving interest payments from the government basically indefinitely because governments never have plans to actually pay off the principal. But the central bank or the Federal Reserve does actually get interest payments. So the government is paying them indefinitely for money that they just created out of thin air that never existed before. It's a pretty good scheme. Now, in addition to that, let's use the Federal Reserve, for example. There are private stock owners for the Federal Reserve system, and these are held by regional banks and... With those, there is a guaranteed dividend every year. I believe it's 6% a year that they get guaranteed. And so that's a really good deal as well. So the banks get a dividend on the stock they own in the Federal Reserve. They basically control monetary policy. They control regulations. So they basically control their competition. They also can create money out of thin air and get interest on it and indefinite payments from the government. They also then have leverage over the government because they are the lenders. They're the ones that finance wars. They're the ones that finance infrastructure. They're the ones that finance anything a government could want. And especially nowadays in this debt-based culture, the government wants a lot of things. People want a lot of things and they have no problem going into debt for it. That's actually how the whole system works. It's a debt-based monetary system. And it is a great scheme for the banks. The banks went out on personal accounts as well. It's basically the same thing. They just do it through fractional reserve banking, where they just keep loaning out money to all these different people. It's money that didn't exist before. It's not backed up by anything. But again, they're getting interest payments on it. The difference with individuals is that individuals in general will actually pay off the balance as well. So the banks will get back the money that they created, in a sense, and they will also get all this interest money. So that's even better. They may have had to have held on to 10% at the most of this money and not be able to loan that out and get magic interest payments from it. But 90% of the money that comes through the bank is just basically created out of thin air and they get it back. So they just create money for themselves and get paid interest until it does come back to them. It's, again, a great system for the banks. 
And that is our debt-based monetary system. The Bank of England is also a central bank that was very similar to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, in a way, is modeled after the Bank of England in that it is a private institution, or actually was a private bank. Early on, the Rothschilds were major owners. I believe at one time one of them was the president of the Bank of England, and they held the majority of the shares, and other citizens and other government officials, the King of England at multiple points throughout the history of England have held stock in the Bank of England. And this is private. I believe there's currently is still stock, but from what I can tell, no one knows who owns it and it's traded and issued secretly. It's kind of weird. I didn't get completely into it because that was a totally different rabbit hole to go down. I didn't feel like it, to be honest. But the point is that the Bank of England was also a private central bank set up very similar to the Federal Reserve. However, in 1946, it was nationalized. So it was no longer a private institution, but now a government institution. Now, you would think that, well, that took the power away from the bankers. So that's a good thing. Well, as I looked a little deeper into this, it seems like the Bank of England has actually lost a lot of its power and influence. The stat that I saw is that 97% of the money supply in the UK is coming from interest-bearing loans by big commercial banks. So it is no longer being created in general by the central bank. Now it's basically just commercial banks that are creating the money and giving out loans that they then get interest on, and we don't need to go over that all over again. But that's basically what's happening. So, moving on. When this is a situation that we are in, and this is the situation we are in, the options from here, what are they? What can we do? Well, there are three main options. The first would just be that you cut spending. So if you don't spend as much, then you don't go further into debt. You can pay off some of your debt, and that's the idea. It's a pretty good plan. However, the thing about not spending as much and cutting spending, most people don't really want to cut back on their spending. They prefer to buy more stuff, not less stuff. So it's not very popular. It's also not very politically popular if a politician comes in and says, hey, this is going to be great. We're going to stop paying Social Security. We're going to cut back on our health care benefits. And yeah, people are probably not going to be very happy. So that option is not very popular. What's the second option? That would be you make more money. So either you spend less or you make more. Making more money. That's a great idea. And that is popular. People like to make more money. So as individuals, we love getting a promotion and getting a raise. That's great. The problem is that it's fairly rare. It is fairly difficult. And it only happens so often and you're fairly limited on how much higher you can go. So although you can jump around to different businesses, different companies, to different positions, and you can at times get large pay increases, there's a limit to how much you can get as far as more. And it's always, well, shouldn't say always, it is usually going to cost you in time and in effort and in other things. So it's kind of difficult and it's limited. When you look at government, it is the same way. There are only so many ways to make more money as a nation. 
And it's very difficult to figure out which industries, which companies, which avenues you should invest in and should be promoted, assuming that you do make all the right choices as a nation and you do end up making more money overall, that is also limited. You can only increase your earnings so much, and it's very difficult to do. So although making more money sounds great and you can do some of it, that is definitely not going to fix the types of problems that we have now. That does not solve anything, and it is definitely not guaranteed. So I said there are three options. What's the third option? Well, that would be to just print more money. So then we can have more money without actually having to earn it or being limited on how much more we can have. That makes a lot of sense. So generally, that's the one we're going to go with. Much more popular. Because as far as people are concerned, well, individuals don't really have that option. So unfortunately, individuals, I guess, are just screwed. They can make more money, spend less money, and that's about all they can do. Or they can just keep going into debt and pretend like it doesn't exist. Whatever they choose to do, that's what individuals do. But the government has this wonderful option of just printing more money, creating more money out of thin air. It's interesting. Some people argue about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin that it's this fake money that just gets created out of thin air. Well, actually, Bitcoin, for example... You have to purchase computer hardware, you've got to use a lot of energy to mine it, and the only way to create new Bitcoin, so to say, is to put all this work into processing the network and solving these complex algorithms, which costs money, actual money, in energy use and in hardware and that kind of stuff. And yes, you can create more Bitcoin. But it takes work to do it, just like gold is a good example. In order to get more gold, you can get more gold, but you do have to invest in physical resources and the mining equipment, and you've got to get it out of the ground and pay the labor to do that, and the energy costs associated with it. It costs money to get more, just like it costs more money to get more Bitcoin. What does it cost to make more U.S. dollars? Well, pretty much nothing. So if you listen to the episode on the Federal Reserve That should give you a good example. Now, we do have some limits as far as what the Treasury Department can do. However, the Federal Reserve is interesting where they don't really have many limits. They are able and legally have the option of purchasing just about anything they want as far as assets are concerned. Now, what they can do is they can't actually physically print more dollars, but they can increase the numbers on their accounts. So instead of saying that they have $100 million in their account, they can just go out and buy another $100 million worth of stocks. And they don't have to use their $100 million on their account. They just create $100 million, an extra $100 million in their account. And they use that to buy the $100 million worth of stocks. And so they just doubled their money just because they felt like it. They felt like it was the best thing to do for the economy. And so that's what they can do. So that's just an example, but there are plenty of ways that the government can print more money, in a sense, to put it very simply. Now, the problem with that is that if you print too much money, you have this problem of inflation, where 
the more money that's in circulation, the more that gets dumped onto the market, the less valuable each dollar is. And that kind of makes sense. Right now, diamonds are fairly expensive, and that's because the supply is kept fairly low. Now, it's kept artificially low because there are actually large amounts of diamonds. There are huge warehouses full of diamonds. There are plenty of diamonds. It's not all that rare. However, they're all hoarded. There's a monopoly, and... Basically, it is an artificial supply shortage, and that is why the price of diamonds is so high. Now, what would happen if all these diamonds that are in the warehouses and that are locked up and that are currently not on the market, what if a few of them started to come on the market? Well, prices of diamonds might go down a little bit, but probably not a big deal. What if all of the diamonds that are in the warehouses and all these extra ones flooded the market, where all of a sudden a a diamond was just as easy to get or probably easier than a sapphire. Well, the price of diamonds would probably go down quite a bit and they would not be nearly as valuable. Now, they would still be valuable because it's a very hard stone and it does take resources to get it out of the ground, but nothing close to what it is now. Now, that's a good example that you can then translate to the dollar, to the currency markets. Well, what if, say, there are, I have no idea how many trillions of dollars are out there in the market. But let's say there's a hundred trillion dollars in the market, US dollars, and that's what's floating around the world in different markets. Well, what happens if you add an extra million dollars? Well, probably not much of anything. Probably just, you know, 0.001% inflation and no one ever notices. What happens if you put another hundred trillion dollars in the market and you double the supply of money out there? Well, all of a sudden, money is probably not as valuable as it used to be. Maybe you used to be able to buy a gallon of milk for $2. Now you might have to pay 3 or $4 for a gallon of milk just because those dollars aren't worth quite as much. The milk is still worth just as much, but the dollar's not quite so much. And so that's the idea, and that's what you have to worry about. Or you can just print money and not worry about it. Just maybe pretend like inflation will always just do exactly what you want it to. Yeah, so... With that, why are we so stable as far as the U.S. dollar? Why haven't we had this crazy inflation? If debt is skyrocketing and we are printing lots of money, why would any other nations actually want to use U.S. dollars or hold U.S. dollars? And why hasn't the value gone down? The main reason is because the dollar is the global reserve currency. So... We could go all the way back to the Bretton Woods standard and the gold standard where basically the whole world decided after World War II, we got together and convinced them that they should just hold the dollar. You should no longer support your currency, and this is many countries, mainly European countries. You no longer have to hold gold for your currency. All you could do is just hold the U.S. dollar. Now, the U.S. dollar, we guarantee we'll exchange it for gold. So, technically, even though your currency isn't backed by gold, it's backed by the U.S. dollar, which is backed by gold. So, in a roundabout way, you're still on the gold standard. We're still cool. And that was the idea. And so, that put us as the global reserve currency. Also, most major economies around the world were pretty wrecked after World War II. There's a lot of destruction, a lot of spending, a lot of wrecked economies. So, we were basically the best option that there was around. And we kind of still are. So, 
the next thing that happened was that we made some deals with Saudi Arabia. And the deals we made with them, and this was a few decades later, was basically that they would price all oil contracts in U.S. dollars. They wouldn't price them in any other currencies. They wouldn't use any other currencies. They would just use U.S. dollars. In exchange, we would support them in the Middle East as their ally militarily. And yeah, so we'd help them out. They'd be our buddies over there. They're our allies. Since pretty much the entire world uses oil and needs oil and gets most of their oil through OPEC, that means that most of the world will need to now hold U.S. dollars, even if they weren't already, because they need that in order to purchase oil. Now, OPEC is not the only source of oil, and neither is the United States, but between OPEC and the United States, that covers at least the majority of the oil that gets shipped around the world and that countries buy, at least as of this time, definitely. So what happens is that countries need more dollars. And the final thing would be the stock exchange. So to put this in context, the U.S. stock market has roughly 43% of the world's market value. The entire rest of the world only makes up the other 56%. Now, with that, you would think maybe we have a lot more companies in the United States. Well, the United States only accounts for roughly 17% of the world's stocks themselves. The U.S. has roughly 5,000 companies, and non-U.S. companies total to around 25,000 companies. So basically, the U.S. stock market has a very large role to play in world markets. We have roughly half of all the stock market activity, and the whole rest of the world basically shares the other half. So if there are investors, which there are in just about every country around the world, it is very likely that they are invested in the U.S. stock market, as well as probably their local national stock market, whatever that may be. So that also drives the demand for dollars by individuals as well as by nations. So with this, people need dollars. Nations need dollars. Now, when they need dollars... We will give them dollars. We love to give people dollars. Because what we can do is we can print dollars, and then we can export those dollars to another nation overseas. And any inflation that would have happened for having new money going into circulation gets exported to a degree so that there is an influx of U.S. dollars in the U.K., for example, and that is used to buy oil by that nation and for them to invest in their own stock market partially and to do other things. And some of that does buy U.S. goods as well, and we like that because then they buy more goods from us and they have the money to do so. But a lot of that inflation and a lot of that increase in the money supply gets shared by all these other countries overseas. It is not just within the United States. Whereas if money just kept getting printed and dollars kept getting printed and they were only distributed amongst U.S. citizens, inflation would skyrocket and we would probably not be able to control that. However, when the dollar is the global reserve currency and there is so much demand out there in the world for dollars, we can export that inflation to other countries and give a lot of this extra money that we're printing to other countries, and we don't have to worry about it as much ourselves. So that's kind of nice. 
Now, to give some context to where we are historically, right now, currently, in today's market, I want to look at the 2008 financial crisis. So that was the last major market crash we had, and that really sets us up for where we are today and what position we're in today. I'll go through a little bit of reading here, so just hang in there and listen to what these very popular and famous people have said about the financial crisis. We'll start off with a man named Paul Samuelson. He said, What we know about the global financial crisis is that we don't know very much. The next is Bernie Sanders. The details of what the Fed did were kept secret until a provision in the Dodd-Frank Act that I sponsored required the Government Accountability Office to audit the Fed's lending programs during the financial crisis. The next one is Steve Bannon. My old firm, Goldman Sachs, traditionally the best banks are leveraged 8 to 1. When we had the financial crisis in 2008, the investment banks were leveraged 35 to 1. Those rules had specifically been changed by a guy named Hank Paulson. He was Secretary of Treasury. The next quote is from Henry, a.k.a. Hank Paulson, the Secretary of Treasury. I believe that the root cause of every financial crisis, the root cause, is flawed government policies. So, next two are from Peter Schiff. I'll just read them straight through. This is a long one. Obama wasn't wrong to criticize Bush's policies, but he was wrong to put the blame on shred regulations. More important, Obama didn't mention the Fed's culpability in the crisis, nor the way government guarantees of banks, explicit and implicit, drove banks to engage in the massively risky behavior that created the crisis. Of course, Obama wasn't in a position to critique government guarantees of banks. He was supporting Bush's TARP. I pick on Obama only as one example of the conventional wisdom that blames all economic problems on insufficient regulation. Hundreds of commenters and politicians said the free market was the cause and that government would be the solution. The problem with our banking system has not been too little regulation, but too much. To curb excessive risk-taking, we do need more adult supervision, as Obama put it. But that supervision should come not from government officials, but from creditors and customers. So, the big government types are correct that our financial system is dysfunctional, and that this dysfunction is the key destabilizing factor in our economy. But the solution isn't more regulation, or even smarter regulation. To fix our financial sector and make our economy more stable, we need something far more drastic, an actual free market. Government needs to stop telling banks what to do and stop bailing them out when they fail. No regulator will ever be as effective as the threat of failure. Former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan has actually argued that the federal government should buy and destroy surplus houses as a solution to the housing crisis. According to Greenspan, the problem is that prices are too low. If we reduce the supply of houses, prices would rise. While Greenspan is correct, the destruction of our housing stock so that the remaining homes will be more valuable is the ultimate in economic folly. So let me input another little bit of information here. I mentioned the debt-to-GDP numbers. So for 2008, which is right when the financial crisis was really hitting home, the GDP, debt-to-GDP ratio, was 68%. 
2007 was just slightly below that. So that's roughly what it was at the beginning of the crisis. Now, 2009, it rose to 83%. 2010, 90%. 2011, 95%. 2012, 99%. So what I'm saying is that if we compare that to our current situation, well, at the beginning of the crisis, when everything had been going really well and the government overall, the nation overall, was making lots of money, their debt-to-GDP ratio was below 70%, and things were good. However, when you had the market crash, things got worse, that debt-to-GDP ratio skyrocketed from 68% all the way up to 99%. Now, if we say that we are currently in a state where our country is doing great, GDP is going up, everything's great, well, our debt-to-GDP ratio is already at 105%. So what happens if we have a market crash? Well, probably it'll skyrocket. How much more could it skyrocket? And what are the consequences of that? Yet yeah, that's kind of the problem. So going to the financial crisis, what really happened? Well, you probably already know the rough idea where there were loans being given out to people that really didn't deserve loans and couldn't pay off the loans. There were adjustable rate mortgages where rates were changing and skyrocketing after a few years. You had these loans getting packaged up in deals where you had a bunch of crappy loans and maybe one really good loan, and they would rate the entire package of them equal to what the really good loan was, and then it was just stocked full of all these crappy ones. And lots of other issues like this, it was pretty much all in the financial sector. But what I want to deal with is what happened. What happened when things started to fail? What happened when the banks specifically started to fail? Well, typically, when you have a business that starts to go bankrupt, they go bankrupt. And when they do, they fail. Oftentimes, they are no longer in business. They liquidate, they pay off what debts they can, and they're done. And so, if you are in an industry and your business fails, well, the other businesses that are in that industry will just pick up the slack and they will continue going on. So the good businesses that are doing good business practices and are very successful, they will keep going. The bad businesses that are not doing so well and are not so stable, they go out of business and they are no longer around. That's the typical scenario. However, in the financial crisis, we had multiple banks that were not doing very good. They were not following very good business practices. They were, they were engaging in extremely risky behavior and bets and investments. And because of this, they failed. They started to go bankrupt and they were going to go out of business. Well, you would think that that's a good thing. Let the ones that were failing and not doing great and were acting in a very shady manner, let them go out of business and go away, and we'll just keep the banks that were actually halfway performing decently. But no, that's not what we did. Instead, the government stepped in and saved the day and bought out some of the banks. They bought out all kinds of assets, stocks, and bonds. The balance sheet of the Fed rose from roughly $1 trillion at the beginning of the crisis to $4.4 trillion over the next several years. That is an increase of over 400%. And $4.4 trillion that the Federal Reserve basically created out of thin air to buy all these stocks and bonds and assets in order to basically save the market, 
that is not really normal business activity. That's not normal market behavior. The markets did not stop their crash and recover on their own. The only reason they did is because the Fed stepped in. That's pretty much it. Now, what else happened? They bailed out the banks so that these banks that were not performing very well, instead of going out of business, they actually got more money. So good for them. That sounds great. You fail, you act in a super risky way, and you make some really big bets. But if they don't pan out, then the government will bail you out. So you're fine. So who cares? Might as well just risk everyone's money. Now, the government did have another option. They could have let these banks fail. And the reason why they didn't want to is because they said that then any individual citizen with an account with that bank, all of a sudden their money would be all gone and that would totally ruin everything, ruin the economy, ruin just everything. We can't have that. Well, what if the government, instead of using all this money to bail out the banks, what if they let those banks fail and then used that money and probably less money to just reimburse the citizens for the money they had in their accounts? Then there would be no loss to everyday citizens the bad businesses would have gone out of business, the good ones would have remained, and the government would have been in less debt. And they wouldn't be stuck holding this gigantic bloated balance sheet because of it. So yeah, they didn't do that. They probably didn't even consider that because then the banks would fail and we can't have that for many reasons that we will not go into in this episode. But the other thing that they did was lower interest rates. So if you remember the episode on Austrian versus Keynesian economics, the Austrians believe very heavily in the, well, the effect of the interest rate and changing it. And the Keynesians believe kind of the opposite view. The Austrians think that if you lower the interest rate artificially, that that creates this bad cycle, the boom-bust cycle, because when rates are artificially low, then companies and individuals are going to borrow more money because it's really cheap to borrow money. You can basically get free money or close to it. And so when you can get really cheap money, then as a business, you can invest in many different projects, many new businesses, many new ventures, because you don't really need to make much profit on the money. As long as you make slight profits on it, and those slight profits would be more than the very slight interest rate you're having to pay now since the Fed artificially dropped the rate close to zero, then you're going to go ahead and do it. Why not borrow an extra $100 million? You're going to make a 1%, 2% return on it. Hey, it's not much, but it's more than you would have made if you wouldn't have borrowed anything. So borrow more money. You'll make more money and everybody's happy. Well, yeah, that's kind of the idea. People can borrow more money as well because those rates trickle down to things like mortgages and other loans. So individuals will borrow more money. And the idea here, so from the Austrian perspective, this is dangerous. This is not necessarily a good thing because people are borrowing all this money and spending it on things that they would not have spent it on otherwise. If rates would have been at their normal market levels, people wouldn't be borrowing more money and going deeper into debt at this point in time. That is very risky, and they don't need to. If there is a business venture that's barely going to break even and make only slight profits, then 
you shouldn't really invest in it. You should put that money either in cash and wait for a better opportunity or invest it somewhere else where there is a better return and more of a need and more of a demand. However, when rates are this low, they just put it into whatever, and that's not a very good use of funds. That's the Austrian view. The Keynesian view is that this is good because even though it may be a little risky and even though there is a crazy amount of debt going on, it's helping the economy. It is increasing demand. That's what we want to do. And so it's a good thing to them. But either way, the economy booms. So the financial crisis hits, markets hit all-time lows, the government steps in, the banks get bailed out, the Federal Reserve buys a whole bunch of assets on the market and props it up. They lower interest rates, so all these companies are getting more and more money, individuals are getting more and more money, they're borrowing more, and then they're using that money to invest and to buy things. And so the economy really starts to boom. Now, that's a good thing. So, on the Keynesian view, wonderful job success. We are good. On the Austrian view, we just created a bubble. And if there was already a bubble that only slightly popped and then we stopped it, then we're blowing a bubble that was already this halfway inflated bubble and we're blowing it even bigger and bigger and bigger. That's really risky. That's the Austrian view, at least. So, what happened after the financial crisis? Well, one problem is that the purchasing power of the dollar really dropped. So what you could buy with a dollar at the beginning of the crisis now takes you somewhere between a dollar 16 and a dollar 42 to purchase that same amount you could have purchased with a dollar back then. And that is inflation. We have somewhere between 16 to 42% inflation and that is a loss of value of your money because of all these things that had gone down to save the economy at the time. Now, this only affects people that were not invested. So basically, we talk about the class system where those with wealth just keep making more and more money, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. In a way, that's kind of true, because if you had money invested in the stock market or in real estate, you made around 400% returns on your money. So if you lost even the highest number, the 42% of the value of your dollars, then you gained 400%, way more than that weighs it, and they're very happy. They made a bunch of money. However, the common individual that doesn't have a lot invested, maybe they got scared and pulled their money out of the markets, well, they're screwed because they just lost somewhere between you know 20 to 40% of the value of their money through no fault of their own. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't do anything bad, but their money is worth less. That's just reality. And that's the consequences. So moving on to where are we now? So that was the financial crisis. Some of that sounds familiar. Some of it doesn't. Where are we now? Well, let's stick with the Keynesian versus Austrian view. That gives us a good perspective here. From the Keynesian view... It is all about aggregate demand. That is the main thing, consumer demand, because the more people want and the more money they spend, the better the economy is. So that's the goal. Well, we do have very high demand right now. We have high consumer spending, high consumer debt, and so the economy is doing well. However, if we're looking into the future, 
there is a large amount of people that are planning on retiring in the coming, let's say, decade. All the baby boomers retiring, and there will be many more people retiring in the near future than have in the recent past. Now, when people retire, they're not typically making as much money. They are not typically spending as much money. And so that does not typically increase demand. It decreases demand. Now, what about the debt levels that we talked about? Well, usually, the higher someone's debt levels are, the less they're going to borrow more. Because if they've already borrowed this much, they're probably not going to borrow much more. If they even could, they probably can't borrow more because no one will loan them any more money because they're already so deep in debt. And they're having to make these payments, these monthly payments on their debt. And half the time, they're just paying the interest on it and they can't get out from under it. With student loans, you can't ever get out from under it. You can file bankruptcy and you still owe that money on student loans. So with debt levels so high with individuals, the effect on future demand is probably again going to decrease it. Now, what about the fact we have low unemployment? That's a good thing. Low unemployment is good. However, when there aren't a whole lot of people on the sidelines looking for a job, then if you look into the future, how is that going to change? Well, it's either going to stay the same and demand roughly stays the same, or you're going to have people that are going to lose their job or come out of the workforce and demand would go down. So if unemployment is already at record low levels, you're probably not going to get much better. You know, some people might get a better job because a lot of people have jobs that they're okay with and they're making money, but they would much prefer to be in a different industry or to be making more money or working more hours. And let's say that happens, then demand may go up some because people are making more money. But there's only so much room we can go with that, like we talked about with the example of our options for the debt situation of making more money. There are limits on that, and it is difficult to do. So yes, even if you said that we'll increase demand in the future slightly, very slightly, you still have all these other factors that are bringing demand down. So from the Keynesian view, aggregate demand's probably going down in the future, which is not a good sign. Now, the other aspect of Keynesian economics is the idea of animal spirits, where people are a little bit irrational, they get carried away, you have the giant bull runs, and then the horrible bear markets where everybody freaks out. Well, what's going on now? We're in one of the largest bull runs in history. The stock market has been going up and up and up. It has been an exuberant market where people just want to buy more, more, more. We have this idea where if you just put money in an index fund, you just buy some stocks, you leave it there, you're going to make lots of money on it. As long as you just hold it there, you don't pull it out, you don't do anything, you don't trade it, just put your money in there. It'll be fine. You'll make a bunch of money in the future. Historically, you've made all kinds of money. And so that's what you should do. And that's what people are doing. People are buying more and more stocks. They're putting more and more money in there. The animal spirits are going and that's at a record high. However, again, when you're already at that high, you're already at that high point, what's the future look like? Well, it might still go a little higher, or it might taper off, or it might start to go down. So, from the Keynesian view, we're, I guess, a little risky right now. A little bit. Not crazy. You know, it might just taper off. We might be okay with demand and with people's animal spirits that are going on. 
but it's, it's definitely a little bit risky. Well, what about the Austrian view? The Austrian view says that interest rates have been artificially low for far too long, for a very long time. And because of that, there are all kinds of malinvestments that have occurred in the marketplace. And there's all kinds of debt that has come out of that that have put businesses and individuals and the government in a very shaky position. Now, what happens historically and normally? Well, rates go down and rates go up. Now, the Fed did try to start raising rates about a year or two ago, and they slowly started raising rates, and they have slowly started to sell off that giant balance sheet that they have accumulated over $4 trillion. But the problem is, when they are selling into the market, it brings prices down. When they are raising interest rates, usually the market kind of tapers off and goes down. And the problem is that that finally caught up with them. They had only been doing it for a short amount of time, a few years at the most. And in December of 2018, they raised rates one too many times, according to the market, and the market tanked. Now, the only thing that really saved that was the Fed stepping in and saying, well, hey, you know, we said that this was kind of an autopilot program. We we're just going to continually slowly raise rates and sell off the balance sheet. And we said that this was going to happen for the upcoming future indefinitely, but we've kind of changed our minds. We're actually not going to leave this on autopilot. We're going to step in and we're going to stop raising rates. So market, calm down. It's all okay. We're stopping here. And the market's like that. The markets are currently factoring in some rate decreases over the next year. Whereas last year, the plan was to just keep raising interest rates. So what's the point of this? Well, the Fed can't really raise rates. They try, and it does not work because the markets freak out because basically the whole reason we have the economy and the stock market we do now is because of these really low interest rates. If the Fed screws that up and starts raising them too much, well, that's probably not going to go too well. And the Austrian view is that's the way it goes. Interest rates are artificially low because of government policy that creates all this malinvestment. Then when rates start to rise up, then things are no longer profitable, things fail, people pull out of the markets, and it's a giant crash. And that is the boom-bust cycle, according to Austrians. Well, the other issue is that we're at record levels of government spending and government involvement in markets. So, from an Austrian perspective, the more government you have, the more government involvement, or intrusion, they would say, that you have, the worse of a position you're going to be in. That's a bad thing to them, and they see that as the reason for the boom-bust cycle. So, according to the Austrians, we are definitely in a giant bubble at the top of a boom cycle or somewhere close to it, and it is nowhere but down from here. We might go up a little bit more until this bubble pops, the Fed probably will continue to lower rates. They're not just going to be able to keep rates the same. They're going to have to lower them. They're going to have to lower them all the way back down to around zero. The problem is that as they do this, well, number one, you can only go so low. And they're already historically very low. And so they can't raise them, they can't lower them all that much more. The other problem is that if you continue to keep these rates so low and you have to keep them low and you have to bring them down lower, 
Well, what happens with our issue of our national debt and the deficit and all this money that we need? If you look at political campaigns, everybody wants to give away more free stuff. Well, heads up, by the way, nothing is free. It's not free. They're paying for it out of debt or printing money or taxes or whatever the case may be. It's not free. But the point is that most political candidates, especially on the Democrat side, they want to increase government spending. They need more money. Well, how is this going to happen? It's going to be printed. Now, what happens when you print a lot of money? You have inflation. Now, how do you combat inflation? You raise interest rates. And that's what combats inflation. Now, based on what we just said, we can't really raise interest rates. The markets do not want that, and they will not respond kindly to it. We will have the bubble pop if we raise interest rates. However, if we don't, we have runaway inflation that is very likely, and we're kind of screwed. How else are we going to get the money? We're already at record debt levels. We can't really borrow much more, or else we're going to start to have other countries question whether we're ever going to pay it off, which, by the way, we have zero plans of ever paying off our debt. We just want to make the interest payments, and that is it, and everybody's happy. However, will we even be able to do that if we need more and more money? Well, more than likely, we're going to print it, but then that leads to inflation, but we can't combat that with interest rates, and yeah, it's just this circle. Basically, what are we going to do? Uh, I have no idea. What can we do? Uh, Probably nothing we're screwed. It, it really doesn't matter what happens from here as far as the U.S. markets are concerned, because the issue has already occurred. The problem has already occurred. The interest rates have been too low for far too long. The boom cycle has already occurred. We're already in some sort of boom, some sort of bubble, no matter how you look at it. The debt is basically at an unsustainable level and spending is at unsustainable levels, there's not really much going back from here. So with that in mind, the future for U.S. markets might not be too rosy. Now, it might take a while to get there. It might take a few years. It might take a few weeks. We don't know. No one knows. But we do see that overall, we are probably at the top of a boom cycle to some degree. Now, With this, what happens when there is a downturn? Let's say the markets start to go down. Well, all this debt becomes a really big issue for the government and for individuals because the United States doesn't look as good to other countries when their markets are tanking, their dollar is worth less and less, and countries start to get a little antsy about the money they have loaned us. So that's not really a good thing, and we have crazy amounts of debt. Again, the reason we have the global reserve currency as the dollar is because of some things that have happened in the past in the U.S. stock market. Well, money's going to be coming out of the U.S. stock market and into foreign markets, so that kind of pulls away that idea. We are no longer on any kind of gold standard, so that kind of wipes away that idea. We also have the deal with the Saudis where their oil contracts are priced in dollars. Well, now there are more sources and more pipelines. You've got Russia, you've got China, and countries don't necessarily need dollars to get oil. Not like they used to, at least. So, yes, we are still currently the best choice for the global reserve currency, but that might not hold true. Well, what if it didn't? 
Well, then we're really screwed because on top of all the problems we have, we can no longer export our inflation. Not only is there less demand for dollars out there in world markets, but you actually have a lot of dollars that would start rushing back into the United States. So in addition to the government having to print more money to pay off all their obligations they have, you have these probably billions of dollars flowing in from other countries that will be also flooding the market with dollars, which will just bring the value down even further and further and faster and faster and more and more inflation. Yeah, not too good. Hopefully we do not lose that status as a global reserve currency. If we do, it'll be much worse. But what can we do? That's just the situation. And again, we can't really raise interest rates because that crashes the market too. So how do you combat this? Well, you really don't, unless you just, you know, quit spending money, maybe, and make more money, and quit printing money, and maybe go to an actual gold standard. There's lots of things you could do, but any one of those things is going to be very painful. You are still going to have a giant crash on your hands, and that part of it, there's not much you can do about that. Now, how you recover and how you treat it, do you actually fix the problems? There's some opportunity there. But more than likely, it'll probably go about like it did in 2008, where we don't actually fix any of the underlying issues. We do fix kind of the superficial issues, just like the fact that we did put some regulations out there and we, you know, changed the way some of these financial instruments are used and that fixed the specific symptomatic problems. But did we actually change anything about the monetary system, about fractional reserve banking, about risk-taking, about the way investments are structured. Well, not a whole lot. Did any of these businesses that failed actually fail? No, they didn't. So did we actually fix anything? Eh, No, not really. But we did fix the crash. So that was pretty much our only goal. We just wanted to stop the markets from crashing and inflate another bubble because that's good. I guess. And so that's where we're at now. That's what the future looks like. The question, of course, is, well, if that's the case, what the heck do I do? Well, to a degree, there's nothing you can do. So hate to disappoint you. I'm not trying to depress you. That's just reality. But there are things you can do. The most important things would be to get out of debt as much as you possibly can. If you can afford to get a new car that you're going to like a lot better, better gas mileage, it's easier to fit the kids, don't buy it. Like Just stick with the car you got, pay it off, or save up money and buy it cash. Whatever you can do, try not to go into debt. Stop financing brand new cars, twice as big of a house as you actually need, the latest, greatest iPhone, like all this stuff. You don't have to finance all this stuff. You don't need all this stuff. Keep out of debt. Pay off the debts you have and don't get any more. Live within your means and live even under your means. That would be a great idea. That's something you can do. It's not fun. It's not easy. But it's much more stable. You can enjoy the other aspects of life, like your family, like time, like learning, like all these other things, hobbies. There's a lot more to life than all these materials and money and all this other stuff. What else can you do? Well, if you're going to invest and you're going to save, the problem is if you invest in the markets, they're probably going to crash sometime coming up. If you invest in just 
cash. Like instead of investing, you put it in a savings account and you just keep your cash. Well, if the dollar does lose value, if we do have runaway inflation, then keeping cash, that cash is just going to lose value every year or every month or however quickly the inflation goes. So that's probably not a great choice either. However, you do want some cash. You may want some investments. But another place to put your money might be in gold. So typically when you have a currency drop in value drastically compared to gold, which will be fairly stable, if not increase under those conditions, you're going to be in a lot better position if you have your money in gold. So that's actually a good choice. I personally recently just switched over an IRA that I had and moved that 100% into gold from the U.S. stock market that I've had it in for many years, and it's done very well. And I went ahead and pulled all that out, transferred it over to a custodian that physically gets certain amounts of gold. I chose all gold and got different gold little bars and picked out the sizes that I want, the weights that I want, the quantity I want. And there is actually gold that's in a basically a safe deposit box in a warehouse that this custodian owns and runs. And that is my Roth IRA. And it got transferred to there. Now, you don't really have that option with a 401k at work, probably, but there may be some other ways of doing it. There are ETFs you can get involved in. There are gold companies and miners. You can personally just buy gold. You can buy gold coins. You can buy gold bars. You can store them in a safe in your house. (laughs) There's lots of options, but gold might be something worth looking into if you're of the investment variety. Another thing you can do and probably should do is buy physical assets. So instead of going into debt to get stuff, and instead of just keeping cash, neither one of those seem to be great options during a market crash. What if you just buy actual physical stuff that you actually need and use? So that might be a good thing. If you can buy a vehicle, if you can buy a gun or buy, you know, whatever it is that you're into that you feel like you would, especially that you would need in some sort of market crash, some way to make food on your own, to save some more money, invest in your house from that regard, invest in some solar panels. If you can actually buy them and don't have to go into debt, there are lots of different things you can do, but buying physical things that you don't go into debt to, to get, to purchase, that is a good thing. So if you have your debt paid off, then you use your money to actually buy tangible things instead of try to invest it or try to just save it and let it lose value. You actually buy stuff and you have physical objects. No matter what the markets do, no matter how much the dollar drops in value, you still have that physical thing. That is not taken away from you. So that's an idea. Overall, I'm not going to depress you anymore. So that is my rough outline of the current state of today's economy and the markets and the United States as a whole. And it's not extremely pretty. It's not guaranteed to tank tomorrow, but we're on a precipice here. We're at a risky place and we need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of all these issues. Now, maybe the market's double over the next year before we have a crash. That's possible. And that's not a bad thing. That's nice. If you have money in there now, you might double your money. And if you pull out right at the right time, then you might make out pretty good. But it's risky. We are at a very risky point in time right now. 
So that wraps up our look at today's episode. The next episode we will do will be on the current state and effects of the education system. We've talked about all the issues and the reasons for them, and we need to look at what effect does that have? We recently looked at John Taylor Gatto and what he felt like he was doing to his students and the problems that were in the school system. Well, with all that, what effect does that have on society? What effect does that have on individuals today who have gone through the public school system? We're going to do a blend of that plus looking back at the why and how. So we know what is wrong and we've covered that, but we don't really know what the effects of that are, nor do we really know how it got that bad and why it got that bad to begin with. So we're going to look at both of those things in the next episode. That should be a very good episode. I'm looking forward to that one, hopefully. And so that's the plan. So please come back and listen to that one. Again, we have the t-shirt giveaway. So if you click on the link at the show notes here for the Patreon page, then there is a post there that gives the details. You can click on it, do what it says. Pretty simple. Basically, I ran over it at the beginning of the episode. I'm not going to do it again. Just click on it and read it. If you want a free t-shirt, you are definitely likely to have a fairly good chance. Our listenership is not in the tens of thousands of listeners currently, so your odds are better than they would be at a more popular podcast. So give it a shot, and you might just get a t-shirt. Now again, with the episode show notes, there is a link to the Patreon page with those details and other things you can look at there. There is a link to the website where you can stream the podcast directly from there and get some information on resources and some other things and outline that kind of stuff there is a link for our twitter account where i basically just post a bunch of memes about how ridiculous different government policies are and things like that and it's kind of fun post different quotes like the quotes that i read here on the podcast and it's cool so you can click on that and follow us on there you can email me at any time the email address is listed as well. So I think that is it. I hope to see you next time. Or I hope you listen next time. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for your support. If you have subscribed, thank you. If you had rated the part podcast already, thank you very much. If you have left a review, you are awesome. And I am extremely grateful to you. If for those of you that are Patreon supporters and actually financially support the podcast and give money towards all the expenses every month, thank you to the highest level. I don't know how to say that. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. It is very needed. It does cost money to do this kind of stuff. So thank you very much. And that's it. So I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.